Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hi there, this is Mike Daniel from 19 Hits the Dragon, a discussion podcast where I sit down with some of my favorite creators in the tabletop RPG space and talk about various aspects of the games we all love to play and be big nerds about stuff in general. Maybe we'll edit that out, who knows? Ah, I have chills. If you spend 40 minutes trying to get as much info as you can out of that one guy at the bar, who clearly has nothing to yep. say. I know how to talk. It's something that I do all the time. God, Michael, what are you doing? Um, At face value, that statement sounds really shitty. I get that. <laughs> but I mean, I'm already think, getting them to think there's a, a reptilian guy about four and a half feet tall with sharp teeth and, and a little dagger who goes, I'm going to get you. You know, um, and while the voice sells it a lot, yeah, like, uh, I'm brooding in the corner. I won't talk to anyone. Like, well, you're getting left yeah, behind because uh, the, the, the <laughs> castle's under attack, and if you're not going, sorry, right. bud. Uh, oh, you're finally awake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, we, we don't know anything about going off topic here at 19 It's the Dragon, always staying on topic, always. So. I said yeah. a lot of bad words when I when you lost me. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> So join me and my guests every two weeks for insightful tips, tricks, and traps for players and GMs alike. Uh, We'll see you all there when 19 hits the dragon. to tonight's episode. I know that I am really looking forward to finally diving into Morden Canyon Presents Monsters of the Multiverse with the two greatest co-hosts in the tabletop role-playing game podcast space, oh. Glenn Myers, Mr. Lewanika Miller. We couldn't yep, invite yep. those two guys, so I got you two instead. How are you two? Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> I was feeling pretty dang fine. Yeah, yeah. Stress on the was. No, seriously. Yeah. It's been an interesting day. I got the nine to five out of the way. The best part of my day, however, was my breaks and my lunch where I got to kind of go through the new book that we're going to be talking about and 
really fine-tune some of my thoughts, my notes. Uh, you and I even had a little pre-show conversation. We did. Uh, I was really excited. The best part about the day was when I got my breaks and my lunch today. Lunch as what am I, a hobbit? I actually got a chance to go through the book we're going to be going over. And, I have a uh, long-standing theory that maybe. It is possible. I am not that tall. <laughs> and, and you definitely like second breakfast. I do love me some second breakfast. I mean, who doesn't like second breakfast? If that's yeah, the no. extent of the criteria, then. Yeah, you're also only three feet tall, so. Yeah. <laughs> second breakfast with road bacon is an absolute must. Thank you, Danilo. Road bacon. Thank you, Danilo. That's a shout out to you. That's right. Yep. No, but going through this book, taking a look, using post-it notes, spending some time really with the book. And I've had it for a while. We've talked about it for a little bit off air. We've really been saving up for this moment. So I'm very excited. This is four and a half months in the works. So I'm really excited to dig into the new book. Yeah. The uh, the book has indeed been out for five months, although some of us did not buy it until uh, just within the last few weeks here. So that's um, it's because the way they chose to release it is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, there's some. There were There's certainly some feedback to be given about that particular. There were uh, choices made. Let's there are choices made. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, there are some know, value decisions that were made. I may not agree with all of them. Yep. However, I understand why they did what they did. I just, of course, they wanted to. They wanted more money. It was 100 percent a choice of dollar signs over over fans. Yep. There's no other reason for it. I would just say this: that when you're part of a corporate entity, there are the people you are expected to feed. Yep. <laughs> there. There are. There absolutely are. Hey, but to so making the choice to deny fans that have been part of your ongoing fan base for the amount of time that most D&D player, I can't say most because there's new people in the hobby every day, yeah. that any avid D&D player has put into buying your products, especially with the number of books that we have to buy. Yeah. Any additional obvious ploy that you use to try to take money out of my pocket, I'm going to yeah. call bullshit on. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to disagree with you, Mr. Myers, because like it, it, we have said this before, that the books at the end of 2021 were not fabulous. There were some moments that were fine, but the books as a whole were not fabulous. And then to be welcomed to 2022 hearing about the latest Monsters of the Multiverse book, mm. but that we couldn't get it unless we bought it with two other books that we already owned for four months. Yeah. Yeah, it's like putting on a new Porsche, but you can't buy it unless you also buy the Ford and the Chevy that you already own. I would so. say this. I, I get what you're saying. And like I said, I would not have made the same decision. I guess the part of me that's been in corporate America for far too long yeah. understands it enough it, that it is yeah. less of a drag on my psyche. Than it's not it a drag on my psyche. I'm just not going to let it go by without saying something about it because it's bullshit. I understand the same piece of corporate America. I just yeah, thought yeah. it was bullshit when I was part of corporate America, too. Like I said, the best part about this show is that we're not all in 100% the same space on every single discussion. <laughs> Fair. Exactly. Fair point. Frustrating. It is not yeah. the end-all, be-all for me. Yeah. It's not something I get overly... Like I was bothered by it more at the beginning than I was in the middle, and certainly... Well, right, then you bought now. the book. Yeah, but you were bothered by it, and then you bought it. We've been continued to be bothered by it for months because we didn't have the book. <laughs> and I can't not be bothered by it because it's a statement of what I can expect for future releases as a fan. Yeah. What does it mean when the next book that they promised comes out? Is it just going to be delayed or is it going to be bundled with two other old books that I already own and I can't have it for four months? I oh. doubt they'll do that exactly the same way again, but I do think there's going to be a lot more bundling in the future. Yeah, I, we see it with Spelljammer. We see it with Dragonlance. So I would there's not going to be more bundling. That's a fact. There's yeah. nothing wrong with a bundle, but an exclusive bundle that stops your fans from being able to purchase the new material. Wrong. That, that is problematic. I understand. Sorry. 
We, we have given it. our five minutes of air on this, exactly. It's appropriate that we had it out over it one more time because this is the Mordecai's mon- mon- Monsters is... of the Multiverse episode. Exactly. And in all fairness, we when when the box set initially came out in January, we opted not to talk about it at that point because we weren't sure how we would make a... I think that the bitch is a worthy bitch, but we didn't want to do an entire episode where all we did was bitch. Was... Five minutes at the beginning of the episode about Mordecai's Monsters of the Multiverse, totally legitimate place to go ahead and air your grievances. On that the pre-initiative level. surprise round. Exactly. And now that we've got that out of our systems, because I feel vindicated and I feel refreshed but ahead. My answer to your question earlier is I'm also doing fantastic, Josh. And of course, oh, I you couldn't get you those other answer. two people to come on the show. I keep trying to book them, but they refuse to sit down with you. You're lucky we will. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had come yeah. up with that. That's beautiful, yeah. bud. Yeah. yeah. That is why you're our wordsmith. He had, he had five minutes to think of a response. So. Yeah. Dude, I'm mean, remembered it this long later. I came up with that almost on the spot. <laughs> Apologies for my long-windedness delaying your expertise in delivery. <laughs> it happens so much while we're doing this. It's not even funny. If I brought it up all the time, you're, you're, no, it's okay. It's cool. With all let's of jump that in. out of the way, let's go ahead and jump in here. Again, we're going to go ahead and do our normal thing. We're not going to do like a traditional deep dive where we talk about every aspect of the book because the book's already been out for four or five months at this point. Right. Or it, there have been plenty of articles, there have been plenty of videos out there that detail exactly what the difference is in everything in this book is from everything that came before this book. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to go point by point. However, all of us have written down some thoughts, some topics that we do want to discuss about the book to go ahead and talk about the content that's in them. So we are, as we have been doing of late, we're going to roll up our initiative and uh, we're going to go around uh, initiative style. So let's uh, let's do it up, gentlemen. Done. That's a 12 for me. Two. Like I'm going last. I'm 16, but I also would say I'm a plus one because I bought the book first. Oh, so 16 on the die with a plus one. I'm 17 all day. I, I guess it's not a wisdom save. <laughs> it certainly isn't. It certainly isn't. It's just dexterity. It's wallet's right. dexterity based. Constitution, because I did have to own up to the fact I bought it. All right, Mr. Miller, then the initiative, sir, is yours. What's top on your list? So I'm saving my spicy take for my last one that we do. I, I want to save that for last because... My spicy take is spicy. So I want to talk about the basics of the book, which are the layout. I like it. I yep. like the way the characters were laid, were done effectively with very few exceptions, one page per character, character race or lineage option. I thought that was really well done. A lot of the language was truncated. A lot of the language seems to be simplified. Issue by issue, we may get into some things about that later on, but I like the way that was laid out. Once we get into the monster portion of the book and we start looking at that part of this compendium, I would definitely say what I really liked is some of the, not even changes, but I picked up things that I have never noticed before. There are creatures and creature types that I didn't see before, whether that's the art that stood out or the way they were laid out. The stat blocks were larger. They were much more rectangular. They just stood out more. And I picked up on things that I didn't notice before. So some of these things, I'm going to mea culpa. I don't even know if they were brand new or not, but the eyes of mm. these demonic dragon types, I don't know if they've ever been in something before or not. I don't know if I missed them before, but I have never noticed this character type until I opened this book, and I thought they were amazing. My players, beware. This is your spoiler alert. alert. These things are coming for you. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I loved some of the 
reprinted monsters because I don't think any of them were new. I think all of these were recycled things. But I love the variety of the monsters that we saw, like monsters that we have not seen in print for a long time or monsters that were not at the forefront of, of things that we have seen before made their way into this book. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the cross-section of monsters that they gave us. Earlier in the show, before the show started, Glenn and I were talking about some, like the Deep Scion thought it was fantastic. Thought that the the cranium rats, the swarm of rats that can be generated by the mind flayers, loved it. Fantastic. I thought that was absolutely great. In theory, every creature in this book is from a previous release, except one. The, the, the flail snail release. is hysterical. I love the flail snail just in terms I, of diversity in the creatures that are in here. They're so much fun. And they gave you lots of options too, just leaning right into what you're saying for the way they laid it out, Liwanika, just by taking something like the ogre of war and breaking it down into four different, four more different versions of an ogre that you can have going yeah. on the battlefield, more different versions of grungs. There's just so many more ways yeah. that you can expand on creatures or types that are already in your game just by adding in a new version that'll freshen them up for your yeah, players. No, I- Absolutely. And not, not more variations on the Drow, more variations on the Dwargar, more variations on the Eladrin, more variations on all these creatures. Fantastic. Thought it was excellent. But yeah. n- now I'm curious, which one was the creature that was new? In theory, the Dolphin Delighter is the only new mon- monster in the book. All of the other ones came from previous publications. That's really funny. And the Dolphin Delighter, by the way, freaking hysterical i like it a lot like, yeah it's like, a whole lot of fun just, like it's a whole lot of fun like the f- f- wild dolphins and just that's a with, everything dolphin. that, with everything that i know about dolphins and like how dolphins are in the real world the fact that they're dolphin delighters is a really cheeky and fun reference one of the other things that i noticed just because it's more of a layout thing and it goes with this point that i brought up is when you start looking at the stat blocks for base characters for npcs whether it be the arch druid, the archer, and all that, they added something that I have not seen in a book before, or noticed before, where they add a little roll table of things to personalize your NPC, and that yep. is true for all of those types of characters. The again, the archer, the arch druid, the champ, the bard, the martial adept, martial arts adept, rather. The Master Thief, the War Priest, the Warlord, but not the Warlock and the Wizard. Just to give, they didn't have a roll table, but they have so many other options. That's probably a either a space concern or a, they don't need that extra bit of flair based on the other things that they have. So I picked that up and I thought that was great. I noticed it first on the Archer because what a cool thing for archers to have, which is the best archers have a signature fletching that they would use. And then they have a roll table for what that might be. That's yeah. friggin' awesome. Like and that a lot should of those go, little flavor pieces are great. Yeah. That should be on the player character side because that yeah. is an awesome yeah. thing. One of my favorite ones on that level, Ali Unico, were the roll table and the flavor text that they put with the Ma Demon. So there are two cool things about that. One, there was a roll table that described the stomach contents of the Ma Demon that you encounter, because that's kind of the whole thing is that Ma Demons are, cons- are consumption demons. They eat whatever's in their path, right? Yep. So there's a roll table for the stomach contents, which I thought was just like mildly disgusting and wickedly hysterical. But then also on that page, there's a little snippet from Tasha. And remember the little snippets from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and how funny right. they were. Her, Tasha a little quote about how fi- about finding a bottle of strawberry liqueur in the stomach of a ma- of a ma demon. Not sure where he got it from, but I'm not going to complain. That's like the fact that they kept Tasha's flavor in a book not about Tasha. Fantastic. 
I'm yeah. here for it. So for mine, I am going to it's very similar to the one that you mentioned, Dominica, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit more specific about it. And I'm gonna talk about how they have stripped from this book, they stripped a lot of the lore, mm-hmm. particularly from the monsters in the Bastiary, right? They trimmed it down. They trimmed down the lore. They made it more compact. They made it a little bit more usable, which makes this book an excellent reference book. It's not the kind of book that you're going to sit down and read cover to cover on a Saturday morning and go ahead and say, oh, isn't that cool? But it is absolutely a book that is now going to find its way within arm's reach of my table so that I can go ahead and run it. it makes it a great reference book. It does make things a little bit vague, right? With the way that things are changing with Wizards of the Coast and with Dungeons & Dragons, it raises some questions whether or not the lore that used to exist for these things is still appropriate and still accurate. But it does make this an excellent reference book, and so I'm absolutely here for it. But the complication there, though, is that stripping out the lore, because they're not going to put it back in just in the beginning, it's saying, if you don't know how to use a stat block, refer to the monster manual and read Mm -hmm. that information, because we're not going to repeat it here. And I get that, especially when you're talking about, in some of these instances additions and additions worth of lore. But if you oversimplify it without giving any guidance, particularly when you're changing things like straight up making creatures that used to not be tied to the Feywild now tied to the Feywild, yeah. some of the changes beg the question, if that's the case, then does this other lore still apply? And without any direction, yeah, it's going to wind up being a call made by GMs all over the country periodically yep. about it because they didn't yep. address what lore still does apply. Yep. yep. There's going to be a brand new source of activity on raw pages, on rules as intended pages, and on rules as fun pages. They're going to get a lot of activity, or they have been getting a lot more activity based on some of the changes in the way this book is written and how that's how that's going to show at tables, especially as newer people come to come to interact with older players hopefully they won't be steamrolled there will actually be legitimate thought thoughtful and thought felt discussions about what works best for our game what works best for this table and not this is my way or the highway right Uh, i really encourage storytellers and dms out there to not make flat unilateral decisions enhance the fun at your table have discussions about what things people are comfortable with what works whether it be through session zeros conversations or just ongoing conversations about, hey, I'm introducing this in my world. This was my intention. What do you all think about it? All right, Mr. Myers. That actually is a, uh, he was there for a few seconds before I got him, so you might have to listen. That actually segues perfectly into my first one. I'll go with a specific one first, because this is the thing I was the absolute most excited about. And it's one of the things that raises a lot of lore questions, which is the changes to Cobalt particularly as a player race. And I say I'm so excited about it because when the UA came out for this and then it didn't come out in Fizzband's Book of Dragons, I was like, what the hell? Because I loved the new version of the Kobold, dropping the cowering little pathetic creature thing, especially if they're descendants of dragons, man, come on. And making them into a fierce, proud people, I loved it. And then it didn't come out and I was so disappointed. But now, hey, here it is. And right before the show, after I had brought it up, Josh and I pulled up because he still had the old UA available, went through it point by point to compare it. And this is very much the UA that came out then with a couple of changes in the yeah, um, but yeah. some cosmetic yeah. changes in the naming of things. But for the most part, a very similar. And the Draconic Cry for Advantage for within 10 feet is a powerful racial ability that I love. It makes this tiny little Draconic Kobold creature a great tank. 
right? Or any great supporting frontline melee fighter where you wouldn't expect them to be. But now that ability means that's where they need to be. And uh, put that as cobalt a big up guy, the paladin, yeah. yeah, make the cobalt the paladin. Yep. I mean, oh yeah. I'm six four, and I and maybe that's why. But I love playing little creatures. I love my halflings. I love the cobalt. This is so excited. I just love the fact that they're not these cowering little yeah I, pathetic I, creatures anymore. Think of Go from Feats and Fates, and how Matt is yes. playing Go absolutely perfect for kobold in this book that's exactly what i was thinking of i just finished listening to episode three i was thinking about episode three and go and how he works and then i was thinking about some of the recent uas specifically the giant ua and i'm thinking how cool would it be to play a kobold trying to get their wings and then have them one be a rune knight and two have some the runic barbarian that they had there in the where he's growing in sizes he may start right. small he's going to grow he oh, effectively man. is a dragon by the time he gets to his largest that's freaking cool as that is. Oh. that is fantastic because like, I, I am all oh. for it'd be it. like ant-man when he blew up i love that concept and it's great that y'all called that out because for go Okay. For Go, Matt actually talked about that in the interview straight up, that he wanted to bring Mordekainen's Kobold and the changes that came in Monsters of the Multiverse yep. to this brand new podcast. And yeah, so great call out because that's exactly what he's doing. Yep. And I think they're wonderful. But how do you determine Kobold lore now? Because in all previous lore for Kobolds, they were these cowering little, effectively yeah. two-legged rat creatures that had no respect from anybody and were the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. 100%. So having no lore to counter that yeah. piece of it uh, maybe we're gonna get some in Dragonlands. maybe hopefully maybe but i don't think the, so they're not traditionally in Dragonlands. yeah i know and there was no mention of kobold like the word kobold did not appear in fizzbin's book so right. i think that, super, that goes back i was to super the, surprised by that i was yeah, really I think, expecting to see it in that one i think that goes back to the lore question glenn i think you're right like we don't know like where do these new kobolds come from and, uh, i want to uh, put in one other thing that i have about the book on the kobolds you go ahead firstly i was gonna say on the lore count uh, here's the benefit. The tables that I run where that's going to come up the most. My camp, my ongoing campaigns are not mm -hmm. in, in a pre-book setting. So the lore becomes non-essential because I have my own lore already designed for right. my campaign world. So it's almost a non-issue for me. Homebrew. Yeah, I recognize it's there and it's questioning. It will impact when new players come to my game, to my table. Because they may have whatever lore is developed over the next few years, and then I—it's just yet another thing I have to set set aside or yep. or incorporate or correct. Currently, there's things I don't have to write into my one-page treatment on the campaign world that could become something I then have to add to that one-page treatment. It's there, but it's not there for me. The more pre-published settings you do, the more important lore and what the lore is becomes. But yep. since they continue to sell pre-published adventures. It would be nice if they got that nailed down fairly soon. Yep. <laughs> and if you look at the other kobolds listed in the monsters, the diary section of this book, you'll see that the way they've written them reflects the new version. Yep. They've written them as a, a much more competent creature as opposed to what they used to be. So I'm confident that we'll just see the change just come and be accepted. But it was just speaking directly to that point of if you strip out the lore, and don't give us a new direction that it could create questions. Yep. But the last piece that I want to call out for the kobold is because they're small, as they should be. And this is a, not a gripe about this book, but it's a call out to wizards that they need to address this. I've brought it up before. But their, their base speed is 30 feet. 
all creatures base speed for walking now is 30 feet. But we still haven't had a rules adjustment that says that halflings and the other small races from the original player's handbook aren't 25 anymore. And that's what, and for any storytellers out there, obviously you can just give that to your players. I do, and I think you should. So I want to encourage you to do that because clearly D&D is saying that shorter legs mean you don't move, you can't cover as much ground is going away because all of the small creatures being released now still have 30 feet. They do not have 25. Yep. Yeah, I think they they steered away from any of the core races in this book. So there's no humans, no dwarves, no elves, no half. I get why they didn't put them in the book. And so I would, I'm sure we'll see that. But yeah, you're right. Even if it's just a a side note at the beginning of a book somewhere, this one wouldn't have been a bad one saying, hey, this one minor change, two races from the player's handbook. Everything's in 30 feet. Yep. Yeah. I'm of two minds about that particular change as a short guy who spent most of his waking life walking next to you, Glenn. You never fell behind. Because I kept moving faster because we run yeah Yeah. and on on a long trek and on a hike like when we did that 10 that first 10 miler to cochegan rock i was hurting on that run on that walk and then when we ran into the dogs long story i'm not going to get into that here it was terrible but by the time you were an adult you could run further than i could yes but i will say this about conditioning training and what you do absolutely i would say that is correct but i think I am not opposed to the change. I get why it's done. They want everything to be balanced. But there is a part of me that misses the fact that was a difference, that you were sacrificing this to get some other benefit at some point versus the base race. I don't disagree with you. I'm simply saying, because if they left it where they were all 25 feet, I wouldn't be arguing to move it to 30. It's only because everybody that chooses a short race since then isn't screwed is why I'm (laughs) encouraging the change. It needs to happen for the balance. But similarly, I would think that you could also take races such as the Minotaur, the Goliath, and say the GIF or whatever, and give them thirty-five. They don't. I think that's so, a shame. I think that's a shame. And you're right. If you're gonna not do that, if you're not gonna separate it, then you got to do the errata, make it official, right. and make it a big thing. But the reason they're doing it is important, and I get why they're doing it. The reason a lot of these changes are happening is to reduce min-maxing. Honestly. It's so that there's no longer looking for the perfect combination to create the character you were trying to create, and you can create what you want, and it eliminates some of the min-maxing pieces to it, though they're still going to be there, because some of these races are powerful, especially now that we're adding in additional racial abilities at level 3 and level 5. But reading what Crawford says, because he put out a thing about it, it's part of it was to address min-maxing. You're not looking for the race that has the exact stat bonus to be the person with the highest intelligence. You're not looking for the race to be the one that can move the furthest on the battlefield. Those still exist as special abilities like the tabaxi. But for a base core, they want it to be uniform so everybody's on the same playing field. I think the other thing that they're trying to do is reduce the ban hammer. I was watching a YouTube channel at Probably. some point, and they mentioned the fact that the Aarakocra was one of the most frequently banned races for player characters, certainly in Tier 1, because flight is stupid in Tier yeah. 1. And at 50 feet of flight, that's just ignorant. Why would you ever walk? Walk, exactly. It, so I get the mechanics of it and the... We're trying to build a game that is one a little bit more fair and we want people to if they see something they like we want them to be able to play it look Tia, wizards of the coast put out a character class that was immediately banned from adventure league it's their own dang game and they right. put out something that was banned they're like <laughs> this is really cool but you're not allowed to play it in anything official that's that says some stuff that says some stuff and i don't think that was lost on the community and i don't think it should be lost on us as talking heads on this stuff is 
that's not a good look for the game going forward. So even though I lament some loss of quote unquote flavor here or there with specific decisions, I get it. And I'm okay with those changes because making those changes works for the game. Players come to each of the three of us with, hey, I'd like to do this. And as long as it's not stepping on the toes of somebody else, I say, go for it. As soon as it steps on somebody else's toes, I'm like, that's really not what this thing is usually all about. I'd be willing to let you do that, but there's going to have to be some give back somewhere else. You can't be all things at all times. And I think that's what this a lot of these little decisions here or there are about. Anything you're really questioning in this book for changes, you can really get down to they're reducing band hammers. They're increasing playability. They're doing whatever. And if you have little laments, there are little laments. My spicy take is actually one of those effectively. So I'm just going on record as now. I'm not saying it's a bad decision. It's just something I lament more than other things. All right. Let's carry on here or else we're never going to go ahead and get to your uh, your potentially spicy take. So, gentlemen, your D20 is ready. Round two. That's a five. Five for me. With my plus one, I'm only at a four. All right. So, so, uh, four. so Glenn, you, you know, go first. In retrospect, what I should have done is gone like 5e and taken advantage on the roll. I'll have to remember that the next time I get something first. I like how we all just make up our own rules to this initiative thing. Totally. As we go absolutely. Yeah. It's a whole lot of fun. We don't um, have any benefit to our initiative either. It's just a straight dice roll. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go broad this time instead of sticking with a, a specific. And it's going to play into that size thing again. But it's a small thing. But I love the fact... And I haven't always been a fan of the size, the small medium choice. I thought it was a smaller medium thing. Yeah, I haven't always been a fan of that, but I'm coming around, especially with some races where it obviously could go in either direction, like Heron gone. You can have a small little rabbit or you can have a giant Flemish that's as big as a German Shepherd. So it makes sense. But I loved the change to the Asimar and some of the other, I'm going to call it a mixed heritage races because in theory an asimar is somebody who's touched by a celestial being a genasi is somebody who's part elemental obviously moniker devilish that one didn't get their reboot but oh okay because it's in the original player's handbook and they didn't take any races from that into this oh good point but i would now apply it to them as well at my table based on this guidance but it makes sense that all of these part elemental or part demonic or part radiant people aren't all humanoid aren't human size human why can't it be why can't your asimar be a dwarf or a halfling who's small and i've always felt that and with the way that wizards is beginning to shift and change i like what i'm seeing i take this as a sign of them moving in the right direction for things like that in the ways that we've talked about breaking away from there's only a half elf maybe at some point we're gonna get other half races maybe not but i love the change and the nod to the fact that you don't have to be a human fire genasi you could be a deep gnome fire genasi and the rest of your traits look like a deep gnome if you want and then it's up to you to flavor it and choose however you describe your genasi but the fact that they put that customization in there shows that they're actually acknowledging that there's other possibilities out there now, and I love it. I noted that. It wasn't going to be one of my points, but I will say this. I wish what they had done is with the artwork, you know, if you're showing your Genasi and you just show a panel with all four Genasi or your Aladdin where you show one of each, they should have shown Halfling Asimar. They should have shown a dwarven earth. How cool is that, by the way? They don't have any dwarven traits at all. Flip the trope. Make it a dwarven water genasi. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, they could have shown diversity. I hate the dirt. I'm glad that they talked about it, but words and pictures, man. 
words and pictures. Yep. I think it was a missed opportunity. And I don't know how they would have changed the pages. Would it have added 10, 10 or 15 pages to the page count? Probably yes. Do I think it would have been worth it to show that versus just mention that in the fine print in one section of each class? Absolutely yes. Because that makes it easier for the new player or the, even the veteran player when he moves to a new town, steps into a new game store and say, I'd like to play this. Well, I don't know if I can have ASMR do that. It's your game, but here's the picture. They show them. Yep. As opposed to telling the DM, it's in the fine print right here. It says, pictures speak a thousand words. And if they, if the DM has seen the picture, maybe they're more likely to go along. And I'm yep. just saying that's a great opportunity that they could have taken. And I would, in, I would encourage them in any future publications that showcase NPCs of these various types that they use alternate styles rather than the stock humans that they're right. consistently showing. And to be fair, there's not even fine print that says this. All of that is my extrapolation just by the fact that they now give you the choice. Yeah, of smaller. Medium. Yeah. They don't actually say all of that, though. I'd like to see them say it at some point, too, but it's at least moving in the right direction. It's inferred. Yeah, it's at least inferred. Hey, all for a step forward, but I'm also all for saying there's still three or four more steps to go. Absolutely. And I would love to see more diversified art for things like that. I think that would be fantastic. One day when we actually have a budget, we should <laughs> maybe commission an alternate portraits of portrait of Asimars for a book that yeah. we're doing or something. Yeah. I'm down with that. Or so, yeah. so at my five, I'm going to go next here. I'm going to go second again this round. And it's going to be Similar to some of the things that we talked about in round one, but one of the things that I loved, again, in the Bastiary, lair actions and regional effects are all over this sucker. That was when we did our lair and legendary actions episode uh, quite a while ago at this point. One of the things that we talked about is that you can look and you can see legendary actions all over the place. You can see them with dragons. You can see them all sorts of places. You can find legendary actions pretty much everywhere. And for the most part, if you take a feat, and make it into a legendary action, that ports pretty well. You can That's a pretty easy port for the most part. You can go ahead and give them special effects. Battlemaster maneuvers become good legendary actions. All these things become great legendary actions, right? Lair actions are talked about and they are mentioned, but you very rarely see good examples of them about what a good lair action is. This book has got them all over the stinking place, and I'm absolutely here for it. I think that is a fantastic thing to include. Because we talk all the time about how one of the ways or one of, one of the tools in the storyteller toolbox to go ahead and make an encounter more difficult, lair actions, regional effects, and minions, right? We're taking minions out of it for right now, but let lair actions and regional effects absolutely add so much spice to your encounters. And if you ever need to go ahead and click them up just one notch, not f two or three notches, by changing the CR of the creatures that they're going to be facing, lair actions, regional effects. It's fantastic. Absolutely love it. Do you have a particular creature in mind that gave a great example? I, in general, thought that the examples all over the place were fantastic, but it was the quintessence. So the, the storm giants, the storm giant quintessence, which are basically pirate captains. They, they, they pirate these large ships, but they talk about their lair. The storm giant quintessence has no need for castles, dungeons, lair. Their lair is usually a secluded region or prominent geographic feature, such as a mountain peak, great waterfall, remote island, fog shrouded lock, blah, blah, blah. And so they go through and they give the potential lair actions. Deafening boom, the giant can create thunderclap, fog, the giant creature, 20 foot radius, create a 20 foot radius sphere of fog, gale, the giant creates a 60 foot long, 110 foot wide, a line of strong wind. So those were three that I thought were really great, but they're every Everywhere. They're all over this thing. Some of the really strong creatures 
they don't get into legendary actions and they don't get into anything like that, but they do focus a lot on lair actions, which I thought was really fantastic. And I really like the fact that you even got a UNT temple uh, map. I mean, that that's a nice little resource that I did not expect to see that kind of jumped out on page 277 in your books if you're following along with the canter today. But I, I like the fact it's a pretty simple map. It, it's nice. I love the fact that I have this on D&D Beyond. That means I can use this, port this over to Owlbear or what have you, so I can actually utilize these maps for adventures and spot adventures and little things I might do, one shots and whatnot. I think it's pretty cool to do that. Oh, the Pitmaster, I remember when we had to face him. Was that the fighters? It was the fighters that had to face the Pitmaster, right? He went down quick, real quick the first time, and fairly quick the second time. Glenn's Herringon did not abide by no Pitmaster. <laughs> no, he did not. No, he He's did like, not. I don't like the snaky arm thing. He's out. Yep. He's out. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the Herringon? No, that was a tabaxi. Oh, tabaxi. that was a tabaxi. Yeah, yeah, My bad. The, yeah, yeah. the, the Herringon was Twitch. That was in the Feywild. Hey there, travelers. Do you want early access to all of our episodes? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? You can do all that by signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. But wait, there's more. For the next month, you can get a free coffee mug for signing up at the Adventurer level, plus Adventurer-level Patreons automatically get complimentary copies of our latest book, The Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse, available on DM's Guild. We love doing this show for y'all, and your support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, so join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. Despite your imaginary plus one, you still pick up the the anchor leg in the initiative here. So what's on your list, sir? I just love the creatures that I didn't anticipate. So I, I spoke about the dragon demons, the Abinashi, as creatures that I thought were pretty interesting. One of the creatures really that I really was the Elemental Myrmidon. You got four nice elements, elementals. They've got armor. There's a bit of lore. It's a small bit of lore, but it does the job. The Elemental Myrmidons are elementals conjured. Uh, and bound by magic, and ritually created suits of plate armor. In this form, they possess no recollection of their former existence as free elementals. They exist only to follow the commands of their creators. Now, these are challenge rating seven creatures. So these are in that nice mid-level where they're boss monsters for most of Tier 2, or you might face two of them as the big fight in at towards the end of tier two, but they make for decent minions because their hit points are high, but not so high that they will last too long in a tier three fight. Uh, so having one or two of these accompany your big bad is pretty stinking cool. We And I'm coming around to elemental stuff. We talked about it when we did Eberron. I talked about the the elemental casting, the spell clouds yep. or whatever i thought i like the elemental nature of those this is the next evolution of that in my mind which is these are big these are beefy they're going to be a threat but th they work for multiple tiers and i'm in the habit of looking for creatures that work for multiple tiers because that shows your characters as you play this game this was hard this you can handle these guys again i got this yeah. and, but yet they still pose enough of a threat where you can't just not worry about them because they throw down. The one thing I'll say about the Myrmidons is that 
they're fine, and I do really like them. I don't know that the rules across the four of them are consistent with one another. If you're looking at, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about each of them have this like special attack, right? So like the air elemental has lightning strike, the earth elemental has thunderous strike. Those are fairly, they're pretty comparable. They're 20-ish hit points around uh, as extra damage, blah, blah, blah. If you look at the fire elemental though, the fire elemental only gets 2d6 in extra damage. And I just don't understand why that would be the case. Like, why would their strike be so much weaker than the other strike for the other group? Because they use multi-attack and make three strikes uh, instead of one. Instead of two. So the other two have multi... But the, one, the air one elemental has, attack. And the, the, the air elemental has three, yeah. It oh. has multi-attack, but lightning strike, one flail attack deals right. the damage. Oh, okay. So when... Okay. Earth uh, elemental, okay. same thing. One maul attack deals the damage but the fire elemental can do it on all three of their attacks yes. of in fiery strike it says the myrmidon uses multi-attack each attack that hits deals 2d6 yep on a recharge that. and they're all yep. on a recharge so there the numbers go. balance based yep. on how the attack is being delivered yep the water and the water and the fire elemental both make smaller fast strikes yep. versus the heavy blows of the air elemental and the myrmidon i might have gone the yeah. other way with air and water i might have made water the heavy one and air the fast one but personally yeah. yep yeah, that's, that. I, I think it has to do with the weapon the trident's a faster weapon than the uh, than the flail maybe versus yeah. the element which is what yeah. i was thinking yep nope that that absolutely makes sense i missed that but so. i love them too which is part of the reason why i was ready with that because i read I, this is one that i went through a couple of times because yeah. they all right it's all about the art for me they look badass these they elementals look badass, bound yeah. into a suit of armor. They just look awesome. So visually, they captured me, and I got sucked in. This was on my list too, Lee Wanika, so it was perfect because I have an extra one, so it's fine. I loved them because <laughs> they're, they're kind of like half golem, half elemental. How else do you get an elemental fully bound and subservient to a mage? So these are any powerful spellcasters, palace guard, or... Base I'm, minions when you're getting into tier three, tier four, and they're fantastic. They're and you can use the different elements to flavor it. Yeah, I love them too. I'm yeah. envisioning going into a cloud giant's perfect cloud giant's temple and having him ha use the air, air elemental myrmidons as guards or even as valets. Like they they are escorting you. Like you yeah. get an audience with the cloud giant today. Stone and giant, get, you can just free the giants. Has, yeah, actually, yeah, exactly. I think that's awesome. Or how about they work for your dragon? Could you imagine a blue dragon with either the air elemental or the mm -hmm. earth elemental just based on where it makes its layers or a green dragon with the water one or a black dragon with the water one? I could see how these would match up with dragons really well. A red dragon with the fire myrmidon. Yep. Hells oh. yes. Oh, hell a, yes. a, a white dragon with the water? Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Please. Oh, yes. yeah. A red dragon who has allergies, sneezing constantly, and lighting his layer on fire, who has a water one. Or an air one. Yep. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. How many different <laughs> ways can we deal out these cards? Dwagar, who have captured an Earth Myrmidon and are using that as like a, a one of the Titan robots from, what was that cartoon with the evil Titan robots? Anyway. One of those. So many different ways that you can go ahead and use these. Absolutely. And again, spoiler alert for people who play in games that I run, you're going to see these. You're uh, and, going and to see these. On your on your tier statement earlier, Luanika, about where these would fit, two Myrmidons against four level nine creature uh, heroes, that is a hard encounter. Just under deadly. It's only, it's under deadly by 800 XP. So... 
that, fast that's fingers, a, Josh. Great information. That, that is a yeah. sweet fit. That's like, a really great. I fit. didn't do the maths. I just saw in my head that I think that's where it would go based on the hit points. And not just that, but if we, to your example, right, if we take that fire elemental and we put them with a young red dragon, I suspect, because the young red dragon is what, level 10, CR 10, I think. I bet you that a CR 10 with two CR 7 fire elementals, that's that's absolutely a deadly encounter well into a tier three. How about a, a hatchling or juvenile dragon? Guarded the by, with these things as babysitters. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> like, so many good ways. Oh, that's mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. Make yourself a fire myrmidon. Give it a voice like the robot in the Jetsons. You make it a <laughs> nanny. Hey, Mr. J. Fantastic. I think that's the end, that round the end of round that, two. That is the end of round I think, two. Uh, I, think we got, I think we have one more round in us, gentlemen. That seems, uh, to be, that seems to be the hour of it. Roughly three yeah. rounds. And I am not going first this time. Nor am I. I got a three. What'd you get? Seven. Seven, 17 on the die, so I'm hitting it an 18. All right, folks. Break out your hot sauce. Here comes the spicy take. All right, yeah, here we go. It's my Kenku. first hearing of the spicy take, by the mm, way. Yeah. Yep. Kenku. I'm going to talk Kenku. I have some thoughts and some feelings about Kenku. As I mentioned previously, I am not asking or I do not want wizards to walk back their decision. I understand why they made their decisions. The decision to take away, at least as it's perceived in the community, generally, not necessarily what's written in in black and white in this book or, or elsewhere at this moment. We're probably going to get better direction on this as time goes. But the decision to take away the requirement for for Kenku mimicry as their only means of speaking, I dislike. Here's my thought. I recognize that it makes Kenku exceptionally hard to play for the masses. I recognize that having to come up with ways to know what somebody else said and then repeat it exactly the same way puts people on the spot. And I recognize all that is challenging and pain point for entry into role playing this game or utilizing this character. I mentioned previously that the idea is to get people to play more of these characters that are less played. Part of why the they part of the way Wizards does that is by removing pain points at the point of entry. That's a huge pain point for this character race. So I get that. But at the same time, it leaves me feeling flat with the character based on how I have had it played at my tables, how I have played it when I've played it and how I've seen it used at, in Adventure League. There is lore. There's lore there, despite the fact the mimicry piece is not as well pronounced. I feel that it's flat. To me, the whole point of playing a Kenku, and the primary reason I wanted to play a Kenku, was that requirement for mimicry. That's what made it interesting and challenging for me, and a desire to play the character. I've had amazing experiences. One of the best table experiences I have ever been a part of in 5e happened with a player who used that requirement to his best self and played uh, in playing that character. Stacy Battle, if you're listening to this, painful. And all those who play in my Saturday game that who remember uh, Stacy using that and just his command of mimicking other players at the table. Yeah, amazing stuff. And it just leaves me feeling flat that it's not there anymore. Now, yeah. My my acknowledgement comes with this. At any storyteller's table, they can say, they can encourage people to do it. If everybody at the table is on board, then have the requirement. But 
don't use the requirement or not the requirement as a means to keep people away from paying the character if that's what makes it fun for them. I wouldn't do that at my table anyway. But for me as a player, this is not a character class that I'll likely ever play again if I'm not doing that mandatory speech thing. Now, I understand from my pre-show conversation, Josh has, has some additional intel yeah. that's going to help frame this discussion, which has tempered my feelings on it significantly. Josh probably recognizes that in the way I spoke about it. Yep, absolutely, yeah. But I will say the way the community has responded to the Kenku is there was a requirement in writing previously, and there now is not a requirement in writing. Now, the truth is a little bit different than that, and I'll turn yeah. over to Josh so he yeah. gets a chance to go into it with you. Yeah, so here's, here is the case as I lay it out before you, ladies and gentlemen and friends of the court. There never was a requirement in writing that is the only way that the Kenku could communicate. It was strongly alluded to, and I can go back to the book and I can go ahead and pull up the relevant quotes if y'all need me to, but trust me, if you go into D&D Beyond and read the legacy version of the Kenku, or if you go to Volos and you read the Kenku, you will see that it is alluded to that the only way that they can go ahead and communicate is through mimicry. But there is nothing mechanically that says that's the only way that the Kenku can communicate. That's thing one. Thing two, a couple of years after that, Jeremy Crawford actually clarified that the Kenku can use normal speech, that there is no hindrance to the Kenku communicating like any other player. And it is assumed that they are able to take bits and pieces from all the various conversations that they have ever heard to go ahead and bridge together that to, to make that communication and to make to go ahead and actually communicate in a meaningful way. So there's no need to for the player to go ahead and emulate it. It recommends pick up a couple of different voices so you can go ahead and vary it up and everything like that if you want to from a role-playing point of view. But again, no mechanical impetus to not do that anymore. So now we get to your other question, to your other point about how the fact now that they have taken it away in this book. And if you read the Kenku in the book, it still says that the way that they communicate is through mimicry. The actual language difference between what is in this book and what was in Volos before is exceptionally minimal. So I fear that a lot of the results that you're seeing online when you're looking at the rules as written and the rules as intended groups, I think, and I don't know, but I suspect that a lot of what you're seeing there are people who are not happy with the changes that they are making to the game in general, they being Wizards of the Coast. I think they're not happy with the changes that this book represents. And as such, they are also throwing up hands and rending garments and gnashing teeth about the Kenku and what have they done to the poor Kenku. I don't see it. I don't see a change. I do not see significant sea change in the way the Kenku were and the way the Kenku are. And I also think that while we all played the Kenku that way, having played a Kenku, I can tell you that that's exactly the way I tried to play it. And it was exceptionally difficult, and I was not particularly good at it. And I consider myself a pretty solid role player. But there is no mechanical... There was nothing that said... That's the way the Kenku have to communicate. It's how we all said, this could be cool. I'm going to do it this way. But there was nothing that said you had to. In fact, other things had said you don't have to. Glenn? Okay. So 
the great Ken Koo debate, eh? I didn't even know what the, I knew that there was a spicy take that yeah. I, you both had opinions on and you wanted mine at the end. I didn't even know yeah. what it was till now. Yeah. So I didn't realize because I'd never gone back and read it verbatim, but I have during the time that you that you were speaking, Josh, I deliberately yeah. went to Mordecai's on D&D Beyond <laughs> and brought up the Ken Koo and I've been going through it and you're not wrong. It does not say that's the only way we, it's in the role-playing Kenku section is where it comes yeah. in the most, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, if you're playing like a Kenku, to, constant yeah. attempts to mimic noises can come across as confusing or irritating rather than entertaining, <laughs> i.e. don't do that. Yeah, you can yeah. just as easily describe the sound your character is making what they mean, be clear about their intentions. And it says, create a vocabulary of noises from the other players for the other players might data code might sound like fun but that can prove distracting and could slow down the game so it's like the way they described role-playing and content a kenku and developing their speech made it seem as though you needed to just build it and it said to work with what they say as opposed to just noises and whatnot but here's the thing in the end regardless the whole concept i get it it was neat and it seemed fun and it created a role-playing challenge but let's look at the direction the game is actually going right is it okay to create a sentient creature who's supposed to be free thinking and the players are going to want to take and play as a creature and say that they're just as smart as everybody else? They can be intelligent, they can cast spells, but they have a permanent speech impediment and they can't form language? It makes no sense. As they evolved, that trait would have evolved out of them. Just if you go with evolution, and I'm not trying to piss off anybody who doesn't believe in evolution, but if you go with the theory of us being created by primates, somewhere along the way, we lost the habit of fling most of us of flinging poop at each other. <laughs> I love the most of us comment. <laughs> makes no sense for a creature to evolve to a fully intelligent version and not have outgrown that. The Aarakocra don't have it. But birds generally don't speak and have their own language except through mimicry. So in my personal opinion, making it a requirement has always been BS. I've never liked it. It's part of why I've never played a Kenku, because that's the expectation, even though at the time I thought that's what it said. But even though that's not what it says, that's the expectation. And my son, who's playing a Kenku as a challenge, and he does an amazing job, he had to create a spreadsheet, though, to keep track of the things he knows how to say. Yeah. How much fun is it going to be when he gets to like 250 entry lines of sentences for what he's allowed yeah. to say? How much fun is it still to play at that point? I've yeah. always thought it was bullshit. It should still play into the Kenku character, though. It's right there in the lore as much as you choose to as a player. But you could also choose to play a civilized Kenku who was raised among humans at Cattlekeep, and he speaks perfect English. Yeah. But or growing common. up in a Kenku society, the mimicry, being able to completely mimic somebody else's voice is a fantastic yeah. ability yeah. to have I've, as a character without yeah. always having to do it. Every time he goes home, his parents complain about how they sent him off to study with their uncle at Candlekeep and that they sound so they sound so academic and refined. Yeah, they, they sound bougie. It's yeah. like when I came back from, from basic training, I was yeah. talking like my battle buddy from Shreveport, Louisiana. And I, like when it rained hard, I'm like, it's raining like a cow pissing on a flat rock. No small part about a little roan did, didn't come from my time yeah. in basic training yeah. with a lot of folks from down south. And I love y'all because... That's where it's at, man. I love dialect and I love mimicking sure. dialect. And that's for me, I do it as a send up, not a not a dispersion. Circle this back and close out my thoughts on the Kenku. And I did a little of that earlier, so I won't rehash a lot of it. But again, it left me feeling flat and it took away something that I thought was there. And here's my big warning and fear. It is very clear that somehow or another, this got wings. This is basically a perfect example of a D&D Mandela effect. The community, largely as a whole, thought this thing was a mandate. 
We now think it's not a mandate. The reality, based on what's actually written, is very little has changed. It has always been suggested methods of play, not requirements. And more to, to what Glenn just brought up was it seems more like these are some specific things not to do while doing this thing. So yeah, yeah. it remains fun and enjoyable for everyone. Right. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say. And this, I still went with my spicy take, even though I knew my opinions had changed yep. because I wanted to have this discussion. And I wanted now to it was just it. mild sauce. Right. Yeah. I have a final caveat. The other piece of it is kind of speaking to that whole speech impediment thing I was talking about and a creature evolving to a full free thinking thing. Kind of like with the kobolds, removing the cowering and the cravenness in the original version of the kenku with that mimicry and that basically it was written as they were less intelligent they were limited yeah. creatures the i mean they straight up have sections in it called hopeless plagiarists because they're not capable of creating anything original ever. yeah they have no creativity right? yeah and they are listed as ideal minions that's not a player character is not an ideal minion yeah. Yep. It, they needed the upgrade. Whatever that that piece that everybody loved for the role playing challenge was basically because you were writing a character that was written to be mentally less than the other characters in the party, and that's just not yeah. okay. And that's something else that Jeremy Crawford cleared up when he said basically, don't look at the rules and think that your Kenku can't communicate. They are not less intelligent than other races because of this. He specifically said that. So I think right. that that is a point placed, sir. Gift and talent for mimicry that they exactly. enjoy. By people, to be enjoyed by people. And yep. we need to be very careful of gatekeeping mentalities. I was just going to say exactly the same thing. And we need to be very careful about the things that would prevent us from having fun. So what I now understand about this book is, despite all of the hand-wringing that has gone on in the months leading up to and in the months that follow is at least specifically as it relates to the Kanku. It's all much ado about nothing. This is simply a character race that is still played primarily the same way it has always been played. In fact, I would wager it's one of the least changed things in this book and we can have fun with it now, whatever way. So what they've done is market the fact that you don't have to do a thing and returned it to what it should have been all along. And right. I am all for that. Me personally, I play this. I'm still going to do it the way I enjoyed having it played with the direct mimicry and using the those cards or those other systems for doing it because I think that's fun. But I love the fact that we've cleared up one of the biggest and should have been easiest things to errata out of this game that for some reason nobody bothered to ever speak clearly about. So I'm glad that Tabletop Journeys is on the case. I'm glad that we've done it. I don't think there's a winner or loser in this discussion. In one minute, Mr. Myers, what's the last what's the last one on the list that you want to talk about? My last one can actually be pretty quick. The last thing is a specific thing from the bestiary. I suck at this word. Like I call it a bestiary. Yep. When it's supposed to be bestiary, all right? I've always called it bestiary. It's the clockworks. I love them. They spoke straight to my sprocket heart. And they awakened all kinds of ideas in my head for ways to create my own. And that gave a template for it, too, the way that it's set up. Because there's more than one. There's one, two, three, four different versions that they have here. And you could work from them to modify into others because they range in challenge rating from one through five. You could make a bigger one, a smaller one. But then beyond that, 
speaking to the flavor that Lee Wanika mentioned earlier, like this one mob really lit the fires of my homebrewing imagination and had creatures turning in my brain to come up with, especially when I got to the additional flavor they put at the end where we're talking about roll tables and things because they went straight for that. They're like individual designs. No artisan, artisans prefer unique clockworks over perfectly functioning ones the co- and the copy too much from others' creations. And then it gives you a list of enhancements and you can just use this as a jumping off point for ideas so you can make each clockwork unique or give it a completely different outside framework and make it look like one of the tiger creatures from Voltron or whatever you want, right? And, I, and you can <laughs> yes. put in increased speed, <gasps> self-repairing, sturdy frame. And then it's got malfunctions too, because these are gnomish. So why the hell wouldn't they have malfunctions? And that's really what put it over the top for me. The table of malfunctions for your gnomish clockwork minion. For the record, you need to make these so you have the lion Voltrons if you're in Theros. And then if you go to Aberon, you have the vehicle Voltron because that's f***ing hot. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> that is amazing. And then we could create a stat block for the ultimate combined clockwork. We, we might have to put we that as a do this, in our, yes. in our new Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> and, then use, uh, and then use Warforged Titans and Colossi as Robeasts. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Dude. Clockworks. Heck, we could create an entire little pocket dimension. Oh, this could be a good time. Goodness. Goodness. Oh. All right. All right. Hey, I'm glad I brought this one up because it took us to all yeah. kinds of fun places. Absolutely. No, perfect. <laughs> For those of you who are way too young, Robies are the creatures that Voltron used to fight. Uh, Let me give you Mordekainen's quote on them, too, because I almost forgot, but this is hysterical. Yeah, yeah. Mordekainen's quote at the end of it. I've sometimes made the mistake of disavowing gnomish contraptions altogether, yet some are downright functional. That said, I still wouldn't entrust my well-being to a whirling kettle. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> All right, my last one of the evening. I get to go ahead and, and pick up the rear, so to speak. I will say my last one is about the structure of the book as a whole. And I know we kind of started with structure of the book as a whole, and I'm going to end the structure of the book as a whole in the bestiary. I loved the utility of this book. And I talked about this earlier about how with the lore stripped out, it made everything nice and light, nice and agile, which is great. But the fact that the creatures are all in alphabetical order is a plus, but mm. it's the appendix the appendices in the back of the book that really make this amazing. The fact that you can, because I just had to go ahead and do this as I was putting together the next class warfare with monks, had to go ahead and you can go into the appendix and say, okay, I want creatures that are a CR whatever. What are all the creatures that are there? Ooh, okay, that one looks spicy. I'm going to go ahead and pull that sucker out. You can go ahead and do that. And then you can also take it a step further. And look at by re, by region or terrain of where they live. Say, okay, I want mountainous creatures. Ooh, here's all the mountainous creatures in the book with their CR. That's the one that I, that's the creature that I want because that's the mm-hmm. CR that I need, and that's the region where I'm at. I think those two lists, and we've seen it in other books before too, and I love them there too. But really, that's what made this book super super useful, and that's why again, this is going to be within arm's reach of, of me whenever I am I am planning anything, and I'm hoping that they that is a trend that continues that every time they put out big lists of monsters like this, we get those two lists again. I want to say that the first time lists like this appeared was in the original three core, but I love them as an addition and putting them into the monster yeah. man, into the beast, the best diary, yeah. effectively the upgraded monster manual. It's yeah. fantastic because that it's is in Volos too, I would bet. Yeah. But now having all of these on a table because they're not going to be in the ones that you had before because these monsters hadn't been released in 5e before so it's giving you a way to fit them into those existing tables and it's for encounter planning so critical 
Yeah. If you're looking at this in B&D Beyond, what you're going to see is just absolute fantasticness. Because if I'm going to make up a word, because all of the monster types are hyperlinked. So I can go to challenge rating three or four and click on something and say yep. that I want that. When I go down to the table by by creature type, those are also hyperlinked. So you can not only hover and see the basics of it, but if you need to save it, you can right click or you can right click and create it in a new window. So all yeah. the things you want to do, you can just set aside and then work on them to put into your encounter builder later. I was going to say, e even in the encounter builder, the ability to go ahead and fi to filter by environment, to filter by monster type, to filter by source, to filter by CR, all that stuff is now baked in. And it's fantastic. Sometimes I know I want to build an encounter, but I'm not really sure. I'm basically idea searching. Now I've got a great place to go. I'm doing a campaign, which we recorded with Patreons, that has mountain and Arctic stuff. It's not wintertime. So I love lists by environment. Yes, I'm, I'm going to go with mountain creatures. I know what level they're at, so I can now go through and say, okay, everything here is good from this point down, depending on how I want to make it work. And so I've got great options because this book is so all encompassing and yep. this is a brilliant place to start. There's still plenty of other good stuff that we didn't get into. And so I would really recommend anybody out there listening to us that wants to learn more there are several videos out there. There are several articles out there about the content of this book that will go creature by creature or monster by monster to go ahead and compare what they were to what they were. I strongly recommend reading the rules errata that Wizards of the Coast put out, which again, specifically goes monster by monster to go ahead and uh, list out the changes specifically from Volos into this book for these creatures. Strongly recommend reading that to get some additional information on that. But again, I... At the end of the day, the thing that I really can't emphasize enough is the utility of this book is fantastic. This is absolutely going to have a place on its on my shelf because of the interesting, fun creatures that they put in here, the range of CRs that they put in here, the range of environments that they put in here, the way that it was organized, and how light and agile the rules were. I found them very user-friendly. I found them really nicely organized. I think this is definitely going to be a book that I'll be able to use for some time. Absolutely. And if it's a, an indication of the direction they're heading with either 5.5 or 6E when they release a new monster manual, yeah, definitely loving the direction we're headed in terms of the extra content yep. for flavor and creativity, even if it's not lore. And honestly, we didn't even bring it up, but the change from actual spell casting to spell abilities, abilities spell abilities makes gameplay at the table as a, from the storyteller perspective so much simpler. One last thing, smash all the likes, subscribe all the subscribes, talk yeah. to us, let us know what you're thinking, let us know your thoughts on the book, let us know the creatures yeah. that, that that stood out for you. We gave our couple things. Let us know how you're feeling about the Kenku. Did you learn something new today? Because I think all three of us learned something new with this and really focused on the idea, make the game more playable. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, let us know, everybody. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening week we're coming at you with our episode all about the artificer class so last tuesday right before this episode came out you heard our fantastic class warfare featuring mike daniel from 19 hits the dragon so thank you again mike for running that with us that was a tremendous amount of fun throwing some artificers against some baddies from uh, from ever on there yeah. and this coming tuesday we actually start our actual play featuring michael ross from the rpg academy and our playthrough of his latest game action 12 cinema that starts uh, this coming tuesday 
and then uh, like I said, next Saturday we've got our our takedown, our class and subclass discussion, all about the artificer class. So we've got some some really cool stuff here uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Here, hope you enjoy. So we have we have shifted our show schedule officially a couple of weeks ago, rather by the time you hear this, but we've a shi- officially shifted our show schedule there we go that was she sells seashells on the seashore yeah exactly yeah we are no longer putting out our main episodes on saturdays we are now putting out our main episodes on fridays so that you can get your weekend started off right with tabletop journeys on your friday commute but remember too that if you still want early access to all of our episodes you can still check us out at www.patreon.com slash tt journeys because that's one of the biggest benefits that you can get for enrolling in patreon and helping support the show so anyway with all that no further ado, gentlemen, thank you again, as always. A pleasure uh, running the show with you. I really appreciate the, the insights that you brought tonight. The, word. I will the just, pleasure was ours, Josh. The pleasure was, yeah. the pleasure was all mine. <laughs> one, last bit, one, one last bit of homework for the audience. If you have not already done so, check us out on DM's Guild. Pick up The Traveler's Guide to the Multiverse. It's a great book. It's a lot of fun. Yep. It's going to add so much to your tables yep. and so much fun. You're going to yep. want to ask every new DM you meet, can I use something from this yep. book? And, and that is uh, the book we put out to go with. Monsters of the Multiverse, because you know, they were just going to do monsters and races. So we gave you the other stuff instead. Yep. And lest you think that the uh, the creative juices over here at Tabletop Journeys ever stop flowing, be expecting some news on that coming up in the next couple of weeks here. All right, gentlemen. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Appreciate the time, as always. Hope you have a good week, and we'll be back to you next week with our discussion on the Artificers. Till then, everybody, have a good week. Thanks so much. Bye. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Peace. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.